Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I always knew that that my ticket to success would be my own. I was never going to get there by way of a man or somebody giving me money. or uh, It was always going to be me believing in myself. And it was shutting out the voices around me telling me, marry rich, find somebody who can take care of you. Don't... All the, the the fears that that fed the pe- the women who raised me, and I had to fight all of that. And I was like, no, I want to be my own success story. That's why I love that share story when her mom was like, you got to marry a, a rich man, and she was like, mom, I am a rich man. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope your 2020 is great. I want to thank you all for listening to these interviews. Hopefully they help you at whatever point in your business or personal journey is. The people's stories on these podcasts are truly inspirational of how they started with nothing and somehow made it to the highest levels of the entertainment business. Great examples for everybody in all business, and I'm thankful for your support. Truly, you guys are incredible. And if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz, at Instagram or Twitter, or you can reach me on my website at barrycats.com. And my guest today is another person who is truly as inspirational as anybody that I've ever met in this business. She's had an incredibly difficult life, been knocked down so many times, and still seems to figure out a way to get back up. Just a really, really amazing person who I reconnected with in New York when I hung out with her and Tiffany Haddish at the Comedy Cellar and Olive Tree Cafe in Greenwich Village, New York. After talking with her there, I realized I had to have her on the show. So without further ado, I will introduce my guest today, Ida Rodriguez. Ida Rodriguez is a new Afro-Latina, taking the world of entertainment by storm with her wit, strong performances, and charismatic personality. Recently, she made history as the first Latina to appear in two specials to air in one month 
on two different networks, both Showtime and HBO. Additionally, Rodriguez was handpicked by Oscar-nominated director Taylor Hackford. Can you say an officer and gentleman? Ray, Devil's Advocate, La Bamba. And he chose her for his new film, The Comedian, starring Robert De Niro. In 2017, Coca-Cola Global Women's Link Conference sponsored Ida's speech that modeled the TED Talk. She also appeared on Comedy Central's The Nightly Show, a finalist on Emmy-nominated Last Comic Standing on NBC, appearances on True TV's Laugh Tracks, Fox's Laughs, Nickelodeon's Mom's Night Out and Parental Discretion, and a five-time host of the PBS Imagen Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. So great to have her here, Ida Rodriguez. There you go. I did it. You did it. I made it happen. <laughs> I have so many things to ask you. Okay. I am very prepared today. Good. All right. First thing I have to ask you is, I saw you in New York, and it was a really wonderful moment for me. Probably not for you, but... No, it was. It was good for me, too. We were at the Comedy Cellar, and we were upstairs at the Olive Tree Cafe, where everybody's hanging out from Tiffany Haddish to Keith Robinson to Godfrey to every comic that guts it out there in New York City. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful scene there. And you walked in, and you know, I've been at that venue for probably 25, 30 years. Uh -huh. And one of the things I notice when people walk in there, you either feel like you belong, mm -hmm. or you feel like you're a guest. Right. And so I'm embarrassed to say that when I first saw you come in there, I thought to myself, I wonder if Ida will give the aura off that she's a guest mm. or she feels safe and comfortable here and like this is her home. And you walked in and it was home. It is. <laughs> and then I said to myself, that's a sign I got to invite Ida to do the podcast. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, that's home. I um, I made that club a goal. Um, I used to go to New York, and so Steve Hofstetter said to me, you go on the road to get good, you go to New York to get great, and you go to L.A. to get famous. And I did it backwards, because I was here. I started comedy here, and I said, um, I gotta get, I have to get my New York cred and my respect. I'm from the East Coast. And it's important for me that New York knows that I love comedy and that comedy is important, that I respect it. And I started hanging out there and everybody that I know would tell me, you're not ever gonna get passed at the comedy cellar, like, you know, whatever. Now, when you say everybody you know. Not everybody, just a few people um, that, would, that I told, that I would be vulnerable enough to say, I wanna be a regular at the cellar. And they were like, yeah, that's a, that's a long-term goal for you. Um, Don't you love when people identify what your goal should be? Yes. And they attach their failures to you? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> it's great. And, and it, it, it is so um, popular in comedy. That is, that is every, there's no measuring stick. There's no formula. It's different for everybody. 
Um, and you know, it was funny. It was DC Benny that said, email Esty and uh, tell her, you know, that you're my friend. And when I, e I still have the email. I, I go back to that email every time. Every single time I turn in my avails for the seller, I go to my original email from Esty. And and now it's so far down, like it's so funny that I, I'll, I'll pull it up, I, I search in her name, and then I gotta scroll all the way down. What does it say? She says, I know exactly who you are. Um, let me know when you come in, in town. I take avails on Sundays um, for the next upcoming week. Come on in and come do an audition. All right, so now you have DC Benny, who's been around the New York scene for a long time. He recommends you. It's always nice when if you're a comedian, if you can be in a situation where people can recommend you. It's not necessary because to be honest with you, I have this philosophy here in Los Angeles that is a very odd philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's that when people want me to put in a good word for them, I say, you don't want me to put in a good word for you. Mm -hmm. And they say, what are you talking about? You can get me on. You can get me on the second in any club. I said, well, yes, I can. But the club owners want to feel like they discovered you. Right. And if I bring you in there, in the back of their mind, it's always like, oh, fucking Barry Katz, he found this person. This isn't somebody I discovered. Yeah. But if a comic recommends you, they don't look at that as like, that person discovered them. They look at that as, hey, you're part of the family and you're just mm -hmm. helping mom and dad put food on the table. Yeah, that was great. And so that's a great thing. So, okay, so now she gives you your audition. What day and what time is it? I went in on a Sunday night. Um, I went on the early show, which started at 7. My spot was like at 8.05. It was like a... How many people were in the crowd? It was sold out. Got sold out. Who went on before you? Um, Hannibal Burris. <laughs> okay, so Hannibal Burris goes on before you. Yeah. And how many years ago is this? This was about <coughs> five years ago now. Got it. So she tells you you're gonna do how much time? Five minutes. Five minutes, okay. So are you agonizing over the five minutes you wanna present to her and how do you decide what you want to do. Do you look at all the material you have in your arsenal? Because obviously she doesn't have really seen everything. Mm -hmm. And do you think, okay, all right, I want to do the fastball down the middle with no blue humor. Okay, I'll start off slow and then at the end I'll get really edgy and close mm -hmm. with a hard R bang. Or what was your philosophy there? So I had all these philosophies, right? I said, I'm gonna go clean. And then I said, I'm gonna make sure I don't do what I did on Last Comic Standing, right? Then I said- Never heard of that show. I <laughs> and then I said- Why tell our audience what you did on Last Comic Standing? So I made it to the top 10 um, the, um, on the finals of Last Comic Standing and- Who were the other nine, you remember? Joe Maki, DC Benny, Rocky Laporte, Nikki Carr, Lachlan, Patterson, Carlos Miller, um, uh, Monroe Martin, and uh, who else? Who I'm missing too? And I, it, so it was it was me, Carlos Monroe, uh, Joe Maki, Rocky Laporte, DC Benny, Jimmy Schubert, and Lachlan Patterson. Very good. Yeah, I remember everybody. I'm 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 friends with the, all of them. 
you know, um, Monroe Martin is doing, I'm doing a show at uh, Sundance. I'm, I'm, my, I'm producing my own comedy show at Sundance and I brought him to come do a set because I think his story is so fascinating. And um, yeah, stay in touch with everybody. DC Benny is, you know, his storytelling. Uh, Carlos Miller and I are friends. Nikki Carr just texted me the other day. Lachlan just had a baby. I just saw him. Um, what a gift, you know, to have that, share that space with those people that moment in time and to see where everybody has gone and is going. You want to tell the audience, since a lot of them might not have been around to see that show, who won last comic? Oh, Rodman! I forgot Rodman. He was the last one that I forgot, the winner. Uh, Rodman won and... Sometimes we forget the winner. It happens, right? Uh, the, the finals was Rodman, Lachlan, and Nikki. Those three. And Roseanne Barr, Russell Peters, and Keenan Ivory Wayans were the judges. So what was the mistake you made? Uh, the mistake that I made was I let one set be more valuable um, than any other. And for me, the philosophy that I had to learn, that I adopted after that was that one set does not a comic make. And that every set is just, is no one set is more important than the other. It's just more, it's important to drop in and be present for the set regardless of what it is and just do you. And I just thought that because that was the, the finals that I had to deliver this set that was over the top, outrageous and perfect. And that doesn't exist. I still haven't accomplished. I still haven't obtained that set because I'm chasing it because that's what comedy is. Before we get into the comedy seller story, tell our audience the most impactful thing that each judge said to you during the competition, whether it be on camera or off camera. So I'll tell you, um, Roseanne Barr said to me on my first set, uh, they cut it out, Barry, she said, why don't you have a TV show? Why haven't I seen you on television? She said, I know you can win the whole thing. Um, Keenan Ivory Wayne said to me that... I, Did you ask Paige Hurwitz why they cut it out? I never asked. Um, I thought, I just, I, you know, I started learning more about the business and producing and the business of television and the story that they were telling. And I just, I just told myself it didn't fit the story they were trying to tell. And I just moved on with it. Do you believe that? Um... I'm a conspiracy theorist, Barry, so I started thinking a lot of things and I felt like, wow, why did they take that out? And then, you know what comics do, I got in my head and then I realized it doesn't matter. What matters is that every time I go on stage, somebody says, wow, I want to see more of her. So You're on to something there because you want the audience to say first before Roseanne. Why doesn't she have her own television show? You want the network executives mm -hmm. who are watching from all the networks to say that because they watch everybody else's shows. Yeah. Okay, so she said that. Russell Peters, what did he say to you? Russell said, damn, girl, because I opened for him. And he his whole thing was, look at my little baby all grown up because he took me on the road and he hazed me on the road and he he... He used to say, like, today, I, I don't want you to do your set. I just want you to talk about your day. 
and some days he would be like hey no swearing today i just want to go on stage like he really like poured into me like i he saw something in me that i i didn't see in myself and was like you have you can go actually really do like comedy comedy <laughs> which i didn't know what that meant keenan ivory wayans told me that um i was too distracting um because i had on a yellow dress and um, he said that I, I, it was, you know, he was like, you're attractive and it's distracting. Comedy is not about distractions. And it was just a weird comment. And then, but he also told me that he thought I could be the next Roseanne. So it was just like one weird thing after the other. So all of those things combined really made an impact on me. Cause that was the very first time that, um, I had received any acknowledgement for being a stand-up comedian outside of my friends. You know, that was people who, Roseanne Barr for me is like, you know, she was it. You know, Roseanne lived her life, took her life to the stage, took that stage uh, performance to a TV show and was successful at it all. And for those of you who don't remember or having YouTube that Roseanne's first Tonight Show set centered around the premise of what she called herself, the, the domestic, domestic goddess. goddess. And so it was all about being a housewife, but amping it up instead of being a housewife, she was a domestic goddess. Yeah. And a blue collar domestic goddess. So no other comedians took you aside and said, "Hey, you're doing well," because you know it's fascinating. Oh no, no, for sure. <laughs> but it was just, you know, Last Comic Standing had the reputation of, you know, bringing, bringing, uh, you know, taking you to the households of America, where, for someone like me, who is a, a Puerto Rican woman, that there is no. Um, there is no person that I can look at and said out that say I want to do that. There is no, uh, you know, Freddie Prince is like the biggest, the most successful Puerto Rican in comedy in in, in history or for, in my history. So there was no, there was nothing that ever, you know, how many how many people have approached me, emailed me, called me, texted me, and said, I never saw myself until I saw you, because they never had, um, they've never seen. A Latin woman with that brand of humor and that sensibility on stage, you know, on that the national stage. So for me, it was, it was just something that was big. Plus Roseanne, like I, I Roseanne was on my dream board, you know, like Roseanne was it for me. And so when I put it, when I, when she was the one that was like, I, uh, she said, I love you. She was like. I still have a text message in my phone right now from Roseanne that says, I will do whatever I need to do to help you get your TV show. I'll write it with you. I'll executive produce. I love you. She was like, I talked to the people at Gersh. I told them they should sign you. I have that in my phone. Um, Again, a comedian recommending another comedian. Yeah, it was just so such a, you know, it was an honor for me. And at that moment, I was like, you know, that's my hero. That that's the one. That's the person who gets to do that. Who gets to perform before their hero and get immediate feedback on on what you are doing from their hero. Like, mo many comedians don't don't ever have that opportunity. So that was a a really big deal for me. It was it was um, you know it was life changing actually.
my my children and I were didn't have our own home when I was on Last Comic Standing. So Last Comic Standing opened doors for me and created a stream of revenue that wasn't there before that helped me get a better life. And it was just, it was a really big deal for me. You know, some some comedians are like, eh, it's just a TV show. It's just, it was life-changing for me. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So you say you didn't have your own home. What does that mean? Well, I was homeless, and so... Time out. Mm -hmm. So you get Last Comic Standing. Now, the way the show works, since Jay and Peter Engel and I worked together to create it, it changed later on in the... Yeah. That was the ninth year that you did it or something, and instead of these searches they sort of started hand-picking people yeah mm. i auditioned three times for last comic standing so but they called you didn't they they called somebody about you and then they brought me in for an audition instead of these searches these crazy mm -hmm. searches and then they bring you in your audition and you had something to do with it. <laughs> you like they they you <laughs> I had a lot to do with the show. Right. I had a lot to do with many, many years of the show. Right. But the year you were on, I wasn't an executive producer on that show. No. I was the first eight years or whatever it was. Right. But Peter stayed on in name alone right. in the last two seasons, but he wasn't involved. It was Paige, Paige and Wanda. And Wanda it was Paige and Wanda. But Wanda, you know, wasn't there every day. No, it was Paige. Yeah. So. And so when you auditioned how many of those three times was on camera and how much was not on camera oh the first audition was not on yeah camera. so you do that and they come to the club or yeah whatever and then so again so it's a hand-picked group of people so i would yeah i went in it was a uh the at the john lovitz club and mm -hmm. there was um a bunch of nbc it um employees there she was like we brought we have our nbc employees and this is who you're auditioning for so it's very important for me to say when i went in for the audition um time passed before they called me so i go in for the audition my grandmother dies of cancer two months later my uncle who raised me was murdered in a hate crime and then Paige calls me and was like, hey, we want you to come do Last Comic Standing. And they don't know this has happened. They don't know that this has happened. <clears throat> now, I want to say something about Last Comic Standing and, and most reality shows. 
33% of last comic standing. This is my opinion from being there for seven or eight years. So 33% of last comic standing is your stand-up set mm -hmm. and your stand-up performance. 33% is your story, your interviews, how they grab mm -hmm. the hearts of America. None of my story was in the show. Okay. And then the other 33%, in my opinion, has to do with casting. Mm. So when you're putting together a show with the top 10, let's say there's 10 women who are the funniest people on Last Comic Standing, and the guys are the 11th, 12th, 13th, 15th to 20th. They're knocking out some of the women because mm -hmm. they want to have a certain amount of women, a certain amount of men, a certain amount of African-Americans, a certain amount of Latinos, maybe an Asian person if mm -hmm. they can squeeze it in there. Diversity. And so sometimes people get in the top ten and you're saying, that motherfucker isn't funny. Right why are they in here mm -hmm. and then sometimes you're like I don't understand how did this happen what so all this stuff is happening to you so when you say you're homeless that means you're living your family is living with either friends or relatives we, at the time yeah. who's your family who's who's in your family my friends I, my, I have a, a village here of friends that we raised our children together CC is one of them and we are I was living with my friend um, Carmen and okay Carmen and at the time your children are how old uh, my daughter was um, uh, in high school she was a freshman in high school and my son uh, was a senior so they were they were teenagers and so Good. yeah and so you know I, I was homeless I lived with my friend but we lived in a Best Western, we lived in a car, you know, we slept in a car a few times. It was, um, it was just a really challenging time, and so... No, I, I, this is incredible, and it's emotional, but I... I want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you for a second. Let's go. Do you mind? Not at all. Some things I don't understand, Tell and me. I know what you're saying. Yeah, of course you don't understand. You standard issue white Jew. Of course you don't understand. <laughs> I don't think like that, but okay. <laughs> but I've always been around you. Mm -hmm. And you always exude power, charisma. Like you walk into a room, you, you take the fucking room. So in between jobs in the entertainment business, I always saw you as somebody who could walk in any room. Doesn't matter if it's the law firm of Schwartz, 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 and Schwartz, the Paramount Studio. It doesn't matter where it is. There's no way you're taking 20 interviews for a job and going over 20. It's never happened. I had a job. Yeah. So that's why you're the kind of person that I I saw as somebody who would have no problem staying away from being homeless because I always saw you as somebody who could work in any profession. 
So I did, I got sideswiped. So what happened was ugly divorce, vindictive ex. Um, I was working and I was uh, living in an apartment that was, I never told this story before. I was living in an apartment that was being written off by the company that I was working for. I was working for a private bank. And that company was uh, paying the rent because they were writing it off as their office on the West Coast because I was a rep for them. And so what happened was, what I was told was the owner of the company was friends with my ex and um, they let me go. But when they, they let me go, they did not tell me what was going on with the apartment. In the interim, I was evicted and I, was, I didn't know because I, I was not getting any of the correspondence because it was going to the office in Indiana. And then the sheriff showed up at my house and I lost my job, I lost my place to live. And it, it, when you become homeless, they say it takes a year to two years to get back on your feet. And so I was working, I worked at a private, um, I worked at Edward Jones at a brokerage and I had a full-time job. I was working at Federal Express. I would go at four in the morning, do work from four to six, take my kids to school, go to work, then go back to FedEx. I mean, I, I've always worked. But it was um, the economic oppression that a lot of people experience. I was going to say women, but men as well. From uh, as a result of divorce, can be you know can be very offsetting for people, and I don't think people realize that. Um, and you know, when I got my divorce, I didn't get alimony. I didn't want it. I just wanted child support. But my ex was so bitter that he felt that if he didn't help me financially that eventually I will come back that if I fell on my face and I don't fall on my face and when I do I get back up so it didn't work out I, I didn't go back I just got another job <laughs> so and when I say that I was homeless I'm very I'm very um I like to be very honest like when people say when a comedian says that they've been homeless it's like really <laughs> how many comedians haven't been homeless I never say that for pity and I don't say it for the sake of like patting myself on the back. So many people are homeless. So, pe so many people have been homeless. And I felt like even in that moment, it was my responsibility as a woman and as a mother to get up off my, um, to get up back on my feet. And so I never, it was never a woe is me. It was like, eh, here we go. All right, now we gotta do it again. All right, so you're doing your auditions now for Last Comic Standing for the NBC executives. How does it go? Well, well, I wasn't going to do it. Uh, um, Why weren't you going to do it? I was in the midst of grief. My mother, my grandmother and my uncle, my grandmother and my uncle raised me with my mom. My mom was really young when she had me. And they were the wind beneath my wings. Everything I did, I did for them. And uh, when they were taken from me, the hardest lesson in comedy I ever had to learn was being funny while in grief expressing my pain through my humor and I was really green in comedy because when I did Last Comic Standing I had only been doing comedy for six years and um, I had to make phone calls and call people Russell hey how do you how are you funny after your father died like how do you how do you do that like this, I don't know if I could do this all I want to do is cry I can't talk about them I can't do this and so I focused my set more on being a mom and stayed away from the family stuff and um, and when I went in, Paige, I know Paige was enamored. Paige saw me and she's, she was like, 
you know, very sweet and very, it was unlike any other audition. And, and then I didn't hear from him for months and then whatever happened, happened. And then I had to go back for the top 28. And um, that was the yellow dress. I wore the yellow dress cause that was my grandmother's favorite color. And uh, she always wanted me to be on television and look like a lady cause I usually would look like this in comedy. And um, I was like, I just, I took all of that pain and I just took it with me. I um, I combed my hair, I put on my makeup. I, I did everything that I knew she would want me to do. And um, and I believe that they were there with me. They were right here. They were? Mm-hmm. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And so you start doing Last Comic Standing. You get into the finals. Tell me the first thing that happened away from the show in real comedy show business where you noticed that your life was changing? The, the first thing was an agent. It was, a, it was an agent that said... Personal appearance agent? Yeah, a PA agent. Who was that? It was uh, Ian Arrighetti. At, Ian Arrighetti, an innovative at artist at, at the time. And Arr Joe uh, Eschenbach. Yeah. They uh, they're both at different places now. Yeah, he's at U U Joe's at UTA and Ian started his own management company. He said... Every time a steel mill closes, there's... 5,000 new managers, just remember that. <laughs> he said, um, first they said to me, if uh, you make it to the top 10, we're gonna sign you. And I didn't have an agent at that time, which I thought would make a, a bigger difference. Um, the The second thing was, um, it was the other comedians. It was the acknowledgement of first of all Roseanne when Roseanne was like you're, you when that cameras came off she was like you're gonna definitely have a show I know it and I was like wow I didn't because it because you know when the cameras are on you're like you don't know if that's for the camera but when the cameras were off she was like I meant what I said and I know you're gonna get it uh Russell sent me a text message and was like uh, game over like it's it's on you know, it's on. And um, it was the audience. It was after a show, um, 
at that theater that we did on Wilshire, there was a group of people that were waiting for me and they were like, we're not leaving until we talk to her. That were like, we're your fans and uh, we love you. And when can we see you again? And, um, you know, that's that second date that you always look for, that when can I see you again? I had never experienced that before. And so you have the day job. You're staying at your friend's place with your two kids. <clears throat> I had to quit the job. The agent signs you. What happens in your mind the first time you get the phone call from him? Okay, I got a date for you here. I got a week for you here. It's going to be... Well, they didn't sign me. So... First, they said they were going to sign me, and then they were like, well, if you make it to the top five, we'll sign you, because things have changed. So they told Joe and Ian said, we're going to sign you if you make the top ten. You make the top ten, and then they say, we changed our mind now if you make the top five. Right. So, and what did you tell them after, go fuck yourself? <laughs> I just kept it moving. I was like, that. I, I just kept it moving. Resolution signed me. Now, Resolution at the time was a company that started and probably was in business, I think, maybe only two years or something like that. Yeah. Refresh my memory, because that was right next to my office building. Who was the owner of Resolution again? It was the, uh, the guy who did ICM. Um, the guy... Jim Wyatt or somebody else? No, um, Berg, I think. Uh not what's his name well that was jeff bird yeah and, and r so kelly signed, was there now who was the personal appearance agent there at the tamra time? goins tamra, tamra of course me. that's right that's who signed me know her very very well yeah and so tamra said you're my voice you're just speaking for me when she saw me perform all right so tell me the first time she calls you and says okay i've got these dates for you what are the dates and uh, what has she got for you? She put me on the Shaq All-Star tour. Okay, so... Like the live tour. <clears throat> so my so, first show is with like Gary Owen, uh, Bill Bellamy. Like I, I'm doing a show with people who are like established and and I go out and I do a run with these people. And just to let you know, Tamara worked with Shaq and she was very in tune with them. She brought the package over to Resolution. I remember that was her big thing. And so when you do a tour like that, what happens is it's very strange because you're packaging a tour around a major star who isn't there. It's the Shaq All-Star Tour and Shaq isn't there. Yep. He's never there. He is never hosting a show. Yeah and his name's on it and people are coming in droves let's buy tickets and oh he's not here and he was usually in the audience but he wasn't even there for my tape yeah you were there yes i was because of bill bellamy huh. and so what happens on that tour is you have a certain budget per show for one of these tours i want to tell the audience about this because i think it's fascinating it is so shack would did a deal where he would do these Showtime specials and they would film them and then they would, you know, edit them down and that's how he got the name and then, believe it or not, he wasn't making a lot of money for these. They were like commercials for 
his brand and trying to bring comedy in. So then when they did the personal appearances, when you book something like that, Tamara books it, there's a certain budget for these shows, for the theater that's in. Let's just go crazy and say the budget is $100,000. So Shaq is going to get his fee. Whatever that fee is mm -hmm. that he's negotiated for his fee each date, let's just say it's let's just say it's a tiny fee for him. It's $25,000. But if they do 50 dates, that's not bad. Getting over a million dollars for not even being there. And then Tamara's packaging it through resolution, so she's making 10% of the fee as well. So she's got her thing going. And then you put your Bill Bellamy on and you say, Bill, will you do this for whatever, 20,000. Gary, will you do this for 15,000, whatever. And then your... They say, Ida, will you do it for $37? Yeah. Your spot is the last spot of the thing. Mm -hmm. All the money's out and there's just a little bit left, but that little bit per date, even if, and I'm not asking Ida what she made, but even if Ida were said, listen, I'm going to put you on the shack tour. I've got 35 dates for you. You're making $1,500 a show. Even if she told Ida that, it's like at her stage of the game, even though she knows, fuck, I'm only making 8% of what Bill Bellamy's making. And I'm going on the same tour and I'm doing whatever. The fact is, it's not desirable necessarily when you see it as one date. But when an artist gets offered a tour that's a prestigious tour, it's show me who you're with mm -hmm. and I'll show you who you are. So yeah. now she's with Bill Bellamy, with Gary Owen. Mm -hmm. Who is the third person on that? So, was uh, it Earthquake? Earthquake was on that one, the first one I did. Yeah, so there's those three and Aida. Mm -hmm. I think there was one other person they snuck on It was a young person, but, but anyway. So Bill Bellamy and Gary Owen and Earthquake aren't saying to themselves, show me who you're with and I'll show you who I am, I'm with Aida. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck? It's good she's getting the shot. Let's see what she can do. And so that amount of money where you're guaranteed a tour that you know is never going to cancel, there's no dates being canceled because people just come out in droves. Right. And so now, even if, let's say, God forbid she was making only $1,000 a show, she knows that $35,000 is coming even if they're taking a commission off her gig, but I think they took the commission off the top. So she knows that money's coming and now she's like, hey, I'm not homeless anymore. Yeah, plus, you know, I came from, I went from featuring to doing that because before last Comic Standing, I only headlined a few times. Molly at the punchline headlines me because she groomed me for headlining. And, and just so the audience knows, Molly, probably one of the most prestigious bookers in the country. Started with Jeff Wills, who's now like the head of Live Nation. Mm -hmm. And she was there in the beginning when I used to go there with Chappelle yeah. and have him headline in 1996, when he was like 22 years old or whatever. And she was there and she was running things and she's still running things today. Yeah, she's, she's one of the bookers that I love in this game because 
It was it was a whole different um, education with her. It was I started off on a Sunday going to do the showcases. Uh, she she let me feature and she she groomed me for headlining. Like she was like, this is how it's gonna happen and that's how it happened. And, she let me open for Paul Mooney like that was that was it for me you know because I love Paul Mooney and I opened for Paul Mooney at the Sacramento punchline and it was and Molly came and watched my set and then she was like ah and then after I featured a few times she was like are you ready to headline and then she co uh, she co-headlined me with Lori Kilmartin at Cobbs in San Francisco and then that was it, I was off. And then I started doing my own weekends at the Punchline in San Francisco and, and in Sacramento. But I hadn't been headlining, so I went from getting $75 a show, and and, and they gave me a little bit more than, than 1500 you know, in all fairness to them. I thought it was a fair wage for where I was and what I had done in comedy with a lack of credits. And you would have done it for five hundred dollars. Yes, yeah. I would have. I would have done it. For so those. if they gave you twenty five hundred, they give you two thousand, fifteen hundred, that whatever they gave you, Tamara was the perfect agent for you at the time. She was because she had that tour and putting you on it. Because the comedy clubs might not have had you on right away. Now they saw that you could do it. You're working big theaters. I believe they had you do a 10-minute set as opposed to the 20-minute set. Mm -hmm. So now you got your Bronco's greatest hits. You're yeah. fucking killing in a theater. The other comics like Bellamere are going like, Ooh. So there's nobody nicer than Bill Bellamy. Yeah, he's nice. I he's mean, so, yeah. And so supportive. Likeable. But also, you know, you got to work with great, like, Laurie Kilmartin. My, my hero. One of it's, my heroes in comedy. I mean, I don't know how many greater stories there are than that, where you got it out through this crazy business and you have your ups and downs, and you launch your podcast with a creative, unique idea, and it goes to number one. And, I mean, I'm just... You know, some of the stories, like yours, just blow me away. Yeah. So you're doing that. You're... Tell me... Yeah. The moment when you get your own place for the first time in a while and you go there for the first time with your kids, I want to hear about that story. So the the apartment that I got was an apartment in um, Sherman Oaks uh, on Magnolia. I can sell the address now because I don't live there anymore. <laughs> but I, I moved into this apartment. My son had gone away to school and so it was just me and my daughter. And... Um, it was a two-bedroom apartment, two-bathroom, um, two baths, uh, brand-new carpet in Sherman Oaks, which is, you know, a neighborhood that I, my kids grew up in because they went to school. They went to Dixie Canyon. They went to Campbell Hall. They went to school in that area. So it was just, it was good because what, L.A. is so expensive. People always say, well, you know, you got to move to North Hollywood or you got to move to Van Nuys. And I was like, I'm moving to Sherman Oaks. And uh, it was, I lived on Magnolia when I first came here in the Academy Village Apartments. In oh, I know those, though. We know those there. So, yeah, I moved into the apartment. It just felt good to um, just have my own space. Was my, it emotional? Of course it was emotional. It was, it was, um, it was, my son was away at school and I was just like, man, you know, my daughter has her own room and we have our own space. And it was, it was, you know, it was a moment because it was, it was beyond comedy and beyond everything else. It was, I was back and 
So, you know, my journey was different. I married my first boyfriend. I, I, I had my two children with him. I had been financially dependent on him. He played professional football. I wasn't, I, I never adjusted to that lifestyle. And I always knew that, that my ticket to success would be my own. I was never gonna get there by way of a man or somebody giving me money or, it was always gonna be me believing in myself. And it was shutting out the voices around me telling me, marry rich, find somebody who can take care of you. Don't. All the, the the fears that that fed the pe the women who raised me, and I had to fight all of that. And I was like, no, I want to be my own success story. That's why I love that share story when her mom was like, you got to marry a, a rich man, and she was like, mom, I am a rich man, and I'm like, I I believe that I could do it myself. So for me, it was planting my feet in that place, saying, all right, now we cooking with grease. Now I got this. I, now I now from here the journey. Now Federal Express, FedEx is behind me. Um, Edward Jones is behind me. I'm doing stand-up full-time and I got a plan. Unlike you, Barry, I had to have a plan. <laughs> I had to sit down and strategize and say, this is what we're doing. And um, I put myself on a budget and I, I, I was just so like, that, that fear of being homeless is so traumatic that you're like, that's not gonna happen again. So here's the savings, everything goes there, and this is how we operate from here on out until we get out of this hole. And that's how it worked. It was, it was, a, it was a, a big moment and uh, it meant the world for me because my daughter had that stability. I just wanted to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com. We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you for any item you choose. You can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry. So just go to berrycats.com, to the store, check it out. I know you won't be disappointed and have a great, great holiday season. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out, and we have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview 
of the next very special episode. I went to uh, Comstock Elementary School. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Flanagan, who used to turn red when she would get mad and would tell my mother, Ida just talks and talks and talks, said to me, readers are leaders. And always reminded me that my way out was through reading. I read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle when I was a very young kid. And um, that book changed my life because it opened my mind and my world up to, I am going to read everything. And I say reading and as passive as that may sound, reading is how I learned about metaphysics. Reading, reading is how I learned about therapy. Reading is how I learned about sexual abuse and how it's not your fault. Reading is how I learned about stocks and bonds. Reading is how I learned how to find whatever I needed to get the help that I needed. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Fancy call All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.